millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, August 17th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, more calls for gun policy, this time from pediatricians and surgeons. Then, with lawsuits and investigations pending, we look at what's still to come out of the state's welfare fraud scandal, plus the last slave ship and the story of Africatown. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Firearms have surpassed car accidents as the leading cause of pediatric deaths. That's according to Dr. Anita Henderson, president of the Mississippi chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. It's a trend that's prompting pediatricians and surgeons in the state to share how parents can protect their kids from firearms while calling for gun reform. MPB's Kobe Vance has more. The Mississippi chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, along with the Mississippi College Surgeons Committee on Trauma, has released a letter outlining the dangers that guns pose to children in the state. Physicians say children are at a growing risk for injury, including accidental, self-inflicted, and intentional assault. Dr. Anita Henderson is a pediatrician at the Hattiesburg Clinic and is president of MSAAP. She says guns need to be stored, unloaded, and locked in a secure place. Children know the combinations to some of these gun safes. They know where the keys are for the locks. They know where um, the guns are. And so parents need to really be vigilant about making sure those guns are stored safely. Dr. Henderson says the message isn't to prevent kids from enjoying activities such as hunting, but it should be done with proper supervision and include lessons on gun safety. And parents should also have conversations about mental health with their children as rates of depression have risen in recent years. Dr. Henderson and the group of physicians endorsed several policy changes that could keep firearms from the reach of children or unstable actors. So we really are encouraging um, background checks to prevent people from obtaining firearms, uh, people who don't need to have them. Um, And so that is something that Mississippians could do, lawmakers could do, to make sure that people who don't need guns don't have guns. Physicians report since 2017, annual firearm-related injuries in Mississippi have risen more than 40 percent. Kobe Vance, MPB News. Coming up with lawsuits and investigations pending, we look at what's still to come out of the state's welfare fraud scandal. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things listen to Fix It 101 podcast everywhere. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. We have spent this week talking to Mississippi Today investigative reporter Anna Wolf. In the first two parts of our conversation, we went back to the six indictments that started it all, and we examined how, since then, the story has spiraled into additional civil suits and investigations that have implicated a former governor, a current governor, and a slew of connected individuals. And yesterday, the story took another turn. One of the defendants in the case, Austin Smith, a nephew of former Human Services Executive Director John Davis, is further implicating Governor Tate Reeves. Jim Wade, Smith's attorney, says Reeves should be the target of the lawsuit, not in charge of it. Wade cites Mississippi Today's reporting in his argument to the court. In our third and final installment with reporter Anna Wolf, we break down the various audits and lawsuits and look at what still may come out of the state's welfare fraud scandal. The forensic audit that DHS initially wanted to commission, um, we found that when they sent that to the auditor's office, the auditor's office came back and was like, this is not a real audit. This is a whitewash. This would be essentially a PR attempt to make DHS look like it did all that it could do. Now, the auditor's office got its way in broadening that up and making it more of a forensic audit than it would have been if DHS had um, had gotten its initial proposal. But the audit still was very limited um, because the firm that they hired did not have the documentation that they needed to do a full audit. So and this was a nationally recognized accounting that's firm? That's right. That's right. And they noted in their audit several times that they were limited in what they could review. They were limited in the scope of, um, for example, communications that they were able to obtain and review. Um, they also were not able to to retrieve um a lot of documentation from the Nancy New nonprofit is is what they noted in their audit. And I think that's interesting because, you know, by that point, the auditor's office had already raided the nonprofit and retrieved a lot of materials from the nonprofit that, you know, the auditors should have been able to use to um, substantiate um, claims in their audit. So $40 million that the new nonprofit spent was not analyzed in the audit. We don't know what it constitutes. We don't know if it was waste, fraud, and abuse, or if it was just unallowable, or if it's, it was legal. We don't know. It was $40 million that was essentially left out. And that includes Brett Favre's contract for speaking engagements. Um, Which he didn't make, by the way. According to the auditor, that's correct. So there's a contract between this nonprofit and Brett Favre that has been sort of a point of contention because Brett Favre says he fulfilled the contract and Shad White says he says he didn't. But that contract has never been made public. It's not a public document. So I've never even seen it. Because the scope of this forensic audit was narrow, is there a concern that it could implicate other people if it does 
take on a wider breadth. Absolutely. I mean, the, the auditors noted that in their report was that, you know, if they had the ability to review more documentation, the findings may have been different in the report. You know, all of this, everything we're talking about is these are attempts to find out who is responsible, right? So why is it that in all of these attempts, in the forensic audit, the the state's audit, you know, the civil suit, in all of these attempts, the stuff that I uncovered in April about Phil Bryant's connection to Prevacus, this company that received $2 million in stolen welfare funds, and he was texting about it all throughout that year, and Brett Favre was telling him that, that Prevacus was receiving funds from the state and that he was working with welfare officials on that and that he agreed to accept stock in the company after he left office. Why am I the only one who has put that on paper? A good question, <laughs> I, I mean, must say, as a reporter, a good question. Do you think that people who knew about this but did not speak up within the Department of Human mm-hmm. Services could be held liable in any form for this embezzlement mm-hmm. case? That's a good question. Um, in Nancy News' response to the civil suit, she lays out a number of pe- people. I mean, I think it's two dozen people um, who, you know, would have been signing off on expenditures, who would have been reviewing expenditures, who would have been involved in communication about the things that they were doing in the welfare program. And she does that to say, look at all these other people who, you know, had a hand in this overarching scheme and only I'm being targeted. Only me and my son and John Davis, we're the only ones who are facing the consequences. Um, You know, I don't know if there are, you know, legal statutes that, um, that those people can be held accountable under. Do you know if Mississippi has a whistleblower law? We do, and the feds do too. And, you know, there's only a couple, there's only a handful of people that I would think could qualify under that. And, um, you know, Shad White calls Phil Bryant the whistleblower, but, you know, he wasn't the one that uncovered it at DHS. And maybe those people who didn't say anything feared for their jobs? Absolutely. I mean, that's true. I mean, I think... The way that government is run, state government is in Mississippi, people are totally scared to say anything at any time um, for fear of losing their job. And John Davis ran the department in such a way that he would fire anyone, you know, at the drop of a hat if they didn't do what he wanted them to do. Have you been able to talk to him after he was indicted or prior to his indictment? Once this became public knowledge. I have not been able to talk to John Davis. Now, you did talk to former Governor Bryant. I did, yes. He sat down for an interview after we um, presented the text messages that we had to him. And by the way, his explanation to the text messages is that he didn't read them carefully enough. Were you surprised he gave you an interview? Yes. I mean, the text messages are pretty clear. They kind of speak for themselves. Um, and his explanation that he didn't read them carefully enough, I guess, is convenient enough. Have you been able to talk to uh, Governor Tate Reeves? He has not. Um, he has not talked to us, but he did release a statement in response to our findings this past week. 
And he said that basically, you know, how can I remember conversations that happened two years ago? And I may have said nice things about people in passing that, you know, before I knew that they were defrauding the government. And that's referencing Paul Lacoste? Yes. And as a result of all of this, there is a school for children with disabilities that parents said was effective in helping their children that has had to close. Right. And the state has lost that. What would be the word for it? That availability, that access. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the people who worked at that school have um, have gone off to to start another school that was is similar. And so, that, I mean, that's very positive for that community. I know that, you know, parents really relied on New Summit um, school as, you know, basically the only place that they felt comfortable sending their children. And there is a new school opening up that has that same mission. Um, and so that is a very positive thing for that community. As you move forward on your investigation, are there any next steps you can tell us about? So, you know, I was really looking forward to the civil case, again, being the the avenue through which the public would find out a lot, of, a lot more information. And those depositions have now been postponed, and we don't know when they're going to happen. Um, these are, you know, sit-downs with that will be public with um, defendants in the civil case. And, you know, the attorneys will be able to ask them questions and hopefully we'll learn a lot through that process. But that's now been postponed. So we don't know when that's going to take place. And I think just, you know, looking out for how the criminal investigation goes, because it will have to be wrapped up at some point, no matter what happens. I mean, Nancy New is going to get sentenced at some point, and that will be sort of, you know, the conclusion of that uh, side of the case. Um, but until then, just trying to get as much information as I can um, you know, through the channels that I've been able to um, tap into that are not necessarily public because this case has been so locked down. And this has been quite a lot of work, um, the in-depth research, um, the requests for public information and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, looking forward, like the hope is that a little bit more attention will be placed on these programs and that something similar won't happen again. And like, hopefully, I hope we can move past the conversation of this, you know, fraud and really look at like, okay, how are we spending the money and what's the best for people in Mississippi? This case is about, you know, the state's philosophy about people living in poverty. And, you know, I think now maybe we could get like a fresh slate and decide what we actually want to do to help people. Much before the scandal broke, long before the auditor began his investigation, I was at the department asking, show me, where are the outcomes? What? How can you tell me where a person, you know, got that job making a living wage um, because of the services that they received at DHS? And they never could. There were very few people who were able to get assistance. Right. And that, I mean, that is based on the state's policies about eligibility. And so, you know, it's not necessarily all falling on the department that they're, you know, arbitrarily denying all these people. I mean, we as a state, our state elected officials have placed those barriers on people receiving public assistance. Um, That is what our leaders want is for the roles to be small, right? They don't want people on welfare. But what are we doing in lieu of that? How do we get people off welfare and not just kick them off, 
so they're destitute, but move them off and to prosperity, right? Um, I just don't think you see a lot of like coordinated effort to make that happen. Anna Wolf, investigative reporter with Mississippi Today. Thank you so much for speaking with us about uh, this ever-growing story and all the work that you have done to make the public aware of what's happening. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, the last slave ship and the story of Africatown. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Fifty years after the Atlantic slave trade was outlawed, the Clotilda became the last ship to bring enslaved Africans to the U.S., After its arrival in Mobile Bay in July 1860, the ship was burned and deliberately sunk to hide the crime and allow the wealthy perpetrators to escape prosecution. After the Civil War, the captives of the Clotilda founded the community Africatown, north of Mobile. And in 2018, nearly 160 years later, Journalist Ben Rains found the sucking wreck with the help of researchers at the University of Southern Mississippi. Rains has turned his own research and work into a book, The Last Slave Ship, and he's the feature presenter at today's History is Lunch at the two Mississippi museums. Rains tells us more about the ship and the efforts to remember and revive Africatown. The Clotilda is really unique in history um, because of when it happened. It happened in um, 1860 on the eve of the Civil War. At that time, almost every enslaved person in America had been born in America because it had been illegal to bring um, captives in since 1808. So almost all the enslaved people had never been through the Middle Passage, did not know what life in Africa was like, had not experienced the slave raid and those things. So with the Clotilda people, all those things happened to them in 1860. And then they lived so long, up to 1935, that they were interviewed many, many times, partly because of the notoriety of their story. They were the last enslaved people brought into the United States on board this ship. So with the Clotilda story, what we have is the origin story for the African diaspora globally, not just African-American. Their story is the story of everybody whose ancestors came here in the hold of a ship. And we have their story from their own mouths. You know, because they lived so long and everything, um, they were interviewed over and over. And so the, the most important time was in 1914 by this mobile woman, Emma Roach, who wrote a book. And her book is what attracted Zora Neale Hurston here to interview Cujo Lewis in 1927. And Zora Neale Houston book, was an African-American writer. From Alabama, who mm-hmm. was living in Harlem as part of the Harlem Renaissance. And so... Um, So the first book, Emma Roach's book, she interviewed 10 of the survivors of the Clotilda while they were still alive. So from their mouths, we have this incredible record. You know, we have what their lives were like before they were enslaved, 
and they were wonderful. You know, they they talk about them in quite poetic terms. Uh, then we have what their the raid was like when their villages were overwhelmed by the Dahomey tribe, which was this notorious slave raiding nation. Then we know what the the slave march was like. We know what their time in the barracoon was like. We know what the Middle Passage was like for them, all from their own mouths. And then we know their experiences in slave people, and we know what happened to them after. That and boat. we know where their descendants are today. They mm-hmm. still live in Africa Town. The town started by by the people on the Fotilda. That ship went to Benin, Africa, correct? Yes, it did. It had 110 slaves on board? Yeah, yeah. And, and I went to Benin as part of my book. And actually, that's a really interesting part of the story. Um, you know, the Clotilda was kind of this ghost that haunted um, people on on two different continents and three groups of people. You know, the, the descendants in Africatown are still haunted by it. Um, and, and then the Mayer family is so ashamed of what they did, they still won't talk publicly about it and never have. And the Mayer and family the beneath, is the slave owner who paid to right. have them he brought spent, over and then had the ship burned and sunk to avoid right. being caught. Right, because it was illegal what he did. And they, they, they arrested him within days of the ship getting back. You know, they knew he had done it. Um, and so hiding the ship was the only reason he got off the hook back then. Um, so, you know, that's what makes the Clotilda unique, though, is it, it is the story of all enslaved people uh, from start to finish. And it's the only version of that story where we, we know, you know, we have it all written down. Is that ship still in the ocean? It is in the river. It's in a giant swamp. Um, so if you've ever driven across I-10, when mm-hmm. you go to Mobile, you drive across Mobile Bay, and on the north side of the road is this huge swamp. It's one of the biggest swamps in the country. Are there any um, efforts underway to uh, bring it up? Yes. We are pushing hard. I, I work with the Descendants um, Association. Botilda Descendants Association, we are pushing the state hard to dig it up, and we want to put it on display in a museum in Africatown. And we have a site, which is an abandoned housing project site that's 42 acres. And we want to put the museum there with the ship in it. We want to recreate the commercial district of Africatown that was destroyed. Um, and we want the museum to be the national monument to the enslaved. And, you know, people from all over the world come to see the ship and hear the story of the people who were on it, because we have their stories, which is so unusual with enslaved people. And Africatown all by itself, we don't really talk about that. By 1910, it was the fourth largest community in America governed by African-Americans, and the only community in America started by Africans. It thrived up into the 50s and 60s. There were grocery stores, movie theaters, um, butchers. So that went along with uh, integration, well, what happened actually is the city of Mobile and the state of Alabama decided to build the hazardous waste route for I-10 right through the heart of Africatown. Okay. And so they built this huge network of interstates right through the heart of town. They actually tore down Cujo Lewis's house and the houses of the other founders in 1992 to make way for this road. I see. So that's part of our plan with the 42-acre museum site is we could recreate the original Africatown on the site, you know, and give people a taste of that. Right, right. You are going to be talking about your book, The Last Slave Ship, the true story of how Clotilda was found, her descendants, and an extraordinary reckoning at History as Lunch for the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. This is really fascinating. Well, thank you for having me on. 
This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.